Hi, and welcome to The Escape Artist, a podcast for the culturally curious traveller. I'm Edwina Hart, I'm a travel journalist and photographer, and each week I'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape. We'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavours. This podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination. Hi, I'm Rhiannon Taylor and I'm a traveller who loves discovering beautiful hotels off the beaten track. If you've ever scrolled through Pinterest and found yourself in a daze of dreamy hotel suites in exotic locations, you've probably come across Rhiannon Taylor. Today's guest is one of Australia's most sought-after photographers. With a keen sense of style and eye for design, she's been a go-to editorial photographer for glossy magazines for almost a decade, contributing to titles such as Condonast Traveller, Gourmet Traveller, Time, Vogue Living and Architectural Digest. Meanwhile, her wildly successful blog, In Bed With, beautifully curates the most unique hotels from around the world. Name any extravagant form of accommodation and she's probably stayed there. African safari lodges, fairy tale palaces in India, Greek villas, Italian villages and ranches in Texan cowboy country. Then add Hong Kong high-rises, overwater bungalows in the Maldives and luxury tented camps set in the Australian outback to the mix. She's certainly seen her fair share of canopied beds, French freestanding bathtubs, infinity pools and buffet breakfasts. In this episode, we'll dive into some of the best things to do down under, immerse yourself in Melbourne's cafe culture before hopping on board the Garn for a train journey that sweeps through Australia's red centre. Later on, let's spot crocs and climb the rugged ranges of the Kimberley and swim with whale sharks off Western Australia's Ningaloo Reef. We'll then get a taste of the high life, experiencing La Dolce Vita in Lake Como and admiring Ottoman architecture in Istanbul before falling asleep in the centre of herbal and floral infusions in a stylish suite situated above a perfumery in Merida. Rhiannon will take us behind the scenes of her picture-perfect life of travel, when things don't always go to plan, as we desperately try to get a glimpse of the elusive tigers in Rajasthan and take a wrong turn on a road trip in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. Here's Rhiannon Taylor. Hi Rhiannon, how are you? Good, and you? I'm really great. I'm beyond thrilled to have you on the podcast. I've been a fan of your work for a long time, and I can't wait to hear the stories behind some of the most Pinterest-worthy photos imaginable from some of the dreamiest destinations on earth. But first, where in the world are you? I am in Melbourne. That's your hometown, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm a Melbourne girl, born and raised, and I feel like I'm very Melbourne. Love cafe culture, love good restaurants, and, you know, sort of very design-focused city, and yeah. So if you had a friend visiting from out of town, where are some of your go-to show-off spots in Melbourne? If you come to Melbourne, we're not known for great beaches and it's not like we have amazing architecture, but I would say that our restaurant scene is really great here. I would say, I'd probably actually say it's one of the best restaurant scenes in, in the world. Mm. So I always seem to just use it as an excuse to tick off all my favourites. We've got Super Normal in the city, Chin Chin, which I think you guys have in Sydney now. Yeah. So what's Chin Chin for some of the listeners who aren't familiar 
So Chin Chin is like quintessential Melbourne restaurant. So no bookings. You have to like get there at five o'clock in the afternoon to get a seat. Wow. It's like that fusion, modern Thai sort of food. Lots of sort of small plates sharing, great cocktails. Um, it's like my favorite place to take someone who hasn't been to Melbourne before. I think for Melbournians though now, it's a little passe. Like, you know, if you go <laughs> yeah. to Chin Chin, you're, you know, you're almost kind of basic. But <laughs> Classic <laughs> Melbourne, always on to the next big trend. I know, I get over things so quickly. Um, if I have someone who's coming to Melbourne for the first time I take them there and it's like my secret spot which I love to go even though I know that as a Melbourneian should have moved on by now. (laughs) (laughs) Well what are all the cool kids up to now like what's the next chin chin so we can all stay on top of this? I think super normal is great. Um, and then also I think our Melbournians are also travelling out of Melbourne to regional restaurants now. So Point Leo Estate is really hot. Rare Hair, which is at the Jackalope Hotel, is really hot as well. For our international listeners, whereabouts are we talking about on the map? They're all on, they're on the Mornington Peninsula. So it's kind of like our coastal peninsula. So there's great beaches and great wine, particularly known for its Pinot varieties. And there's really amazing restaurants coming up there. So Point Leo Estate is probably my favourite. And that's a really great excuse for me to take people out of Melbourne and see something regional. Oh, you definitely have it good in that part of the world. Yeah, it is nice. Okay, so now I have a question for you that I always ask my guests, but I'm really curious to know your answer because you're a very visual person. Is there a book, a film, a song or piece of art that inspired you to travel somewhere? Oh, um, I would say, I mean, one of my all-time favourite films, and it kind of is a travel film, well, it is a travel film, is Darjeeling Limited. Is it Darjeeling Limited? Yes, the Darjeeling Limited by Wes Anderson. You're actually the second guest to pick that exact film. Yeah, pretty much anything by Wes Anderson is visually inspiring. Mm. I also love the Grand Budapest Hotel. But the Darjeeling Limited, I think, in particular, gave me a fascination with train travel because, I, you know, I feel like it's just, it's almost like you step back in time. Oh, my God. Oh, and yes. I actually got to realise that dream last year through a trip on the Garn, mm-hmm. um, which was really cool. Have you done the Garn? Oh, my gosh. I am so on that page with you about old world train journeys because I've done quite a few around the world, but I have never been on the Garn. I can imagine it's spectacular sweeping through the heart of Australia, though. Can you set the scene for the listeners? Like, what's it like to travel on board? Well, I mean, it's not as colourful as the Darjeeling Limited train, Mm. but this is quintessential Australian travel. So everyone who works on the Garn has khakis and RM Williams and a Cobra hats, and it's very outback Aussie. But there's this atmosphere where you're going through the outback, it's dusty, all your clothes kind of get red with the outback dust and you don't really see people you're just kind of like in the middle of nowhere and you just this train is just going through the outback Australian landscape so where does the train go to and from I think I went from Darwin to Adelaide Mm -hmm. I did I think it was three nights I think you can do a two-night version but yeah and then you you know you you stop off in places like Alice Springs you can go then to Uluru or one of my favorite stops was Coober Pedy which is in South Australia and I'd never seen sort of um, outback landscape like that it was really it was always surreal for me I kind of got to live my um, Darjeeling Limited dream through the garden it was it was really cool and you get to know people on the train like in your carriage and you know you meet your neighbor and hear their stories and because you're stuck on the train for the majority of the trip you start to make friends it's really fascinating it's almost like a cruise ship but way more relaxed and I think people are embracing slow travel a little more now Mm. and this is kind of like the definition of that. Yes, and I completely agree that there's a real convivial atmosphere on board. You know, you take your meals in the dining carriages and then maybe have a cocktail at the bar and some people, 
you know, go and have a cigar on the observation deck and watch the world unfold. And there's this feeling of revelry and excitement. And I remember on one of the train trips I've been on, on board the Eastern and Oriental Express, we travelled from Singapore to Bangkok through the Malaysian jungle. Oh, amazing. And some of my fellow passengers and I were playing this game, inspired by reading Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. And this train... um, is named after the original Orient Express, but is a more, I guess, oriental or exotic version of it. And we would guess who on board would be most likely to have a sort of deep, dark secret or maybe even commit a murder. But it's totally that vibe. It's kind of like, it's it's almost like... You feel like you've stepped into a classic Hollywood film or something. Exactly. And you're like, who are these people? Do you trust these people? <laughs> you know, who do you form an alliance with? You know, it's like, and then it's like, oh, maybe there might be a secret train romance. It's all just, it's like a movie. It's bizarre. So true. And there's a real romance to the rails, isn't there? I thoroughly recommend reading Murder on the Orient Express, by the way, uh, by Agatha Christie for anyone thinking of taking a train journey. It's just a classic. And another great book uh, for train lovers is Paul Thoreau's The Great Railway Bazaar. It just really captures the essence of train travel. But now I'd like to rewind the clock, Ree, back to your childhood. Is there a travel memory that really stands out for you? Yeah, I, we. so my father's Indian and he moved to Australia when he was about 20. So when my, and my mum's Australian, so when uh, my parents had me, when we were growing up as kids, we used to go back to India to see dad's family. Um, so that was really the main travel that we did as kids was to go back to India and meet the family. Whereabouts and in India was that? So dad's in South India. He's from Bangalore. So we used to go back there and we would stay with the family. And it was, I think for me, I remembered it was just like a assault on the senses because I was exposed to all these colours and these different people and the chaos. And it was mm. just so different to what I was used to back in the suburbs in Melbourne. I can still remember it just because it was so, so different to what I was used to at home. And I just, I remember eating all the food like gulab jamans and curries and stuff like that which I we didn't really have back home we were you know fairly basic with what we would eat back at home so to go and have like my grandma cook all these unique things it was totally different for me and it was so exciting but inversely it was also my first experience and exposure to third world way of life Mm -hmm. and these are memories that have stuck with me forever and I think probably what started or what ended up making me go into the travel industry. Because I remember, um, I even remember like as a kid, we would be going through the streets and I would see children who are homeless. And I remember vividly saying to mum, oh, mum, these kids don't have a home. Okay, we need to take them with us. Mm. Well, if they don't have a home, then of course we have to take them. And my mum was like, no, we can't, sorry. And I remember crying getting into um, a taxi as we were driving away. And I was like, mum, we need to take them. We need to take them. They don't have a house. And I remember that very vividly. And that kind of sparked my interest in travel and to see how different people live. So it was really unique. I think traveling when you're a child can have a profound effect. And I think it's very important to travel as a child. I totally agree with that. And I traveled to India when I was young too. And it was a complete culture shock in the best possible way. Mm. But I think, yeah, being exposed to different countries, different cultures as a child really broadens your understanding of the world and 
and really makes you realize how small you really are in the grand mm. scheme of things. Now, I know that you've spent some time more recently in Rajasthan, and I have to say that Rajasthan is one of my favorite places in the world. I keep finding myself drawn back there again and again. Oh, me too. Uh, it's known too. as the land of the kings. It's like the very essence of India. Everything you expect in your imagination, Rajasthan delivers. You know, it's got the fairy tale palaces, the majestic forts, the colors, the chaos. Mm. Um, it's just the, the spice-scented streets. Can you tell us a bit about your travels in the region, Rhiannon? So I've only been once and it was a few years ago and I actually took my husband with me and, I mean, we did it pretty luxe. We stayed in some really beautiful palaces. It was, like you said, it just encompassed everything that you thought India should be. I mean, we we went on safari. We went to, um, I think, is it Ranthambore? Uh, in Ranthambore National, National Park. Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, and we stayed at um, Amani Car, which is an Amman oh, um, hotel. Gorgeous. And it's, yeah, and it's a tented camp. It's super, super luxe, but you know, feel like you're camping because it's these sort of billowy tents. Mm. It was funny. We were there for like three days in search of a Bengal tiger, mm-hmm. and I think there's only something like 50 left in the National Park. They're like super, super rare. And we went on a safari, and we literally like tracked these things for days, and we didn't see one. And then at the end, we saw one. It was like, (gasps) but it was hundreds of meters away, like far away. And we got like this tiny, tiny little glimpse of its butt for like two seconds. (laughs) But still, that's so exciting. I know. The worst part is, though, I follow this influencer on Instagram. And I think the week later, she went and stayed at the same tented camp and Mm. she went on safari with like, I think the same guide and they literally saw multiple tigers. It's just the luck of the draw, isn't it? And they were like coming up to the car just sort of brushing past and I was I was just like (laughs) devastated and I have like this photo which you have to you know you like the 100% crop and it's super (laughs) pixelated I'm like that's my one photo and it's like out of focus and blurry she has basically she was touching this tiger (laughs) and like stroking it. (laughs) But I must say that uh, I'm jealous that you even got to glimpse the tiger's backside because the only time I've been to Ranthambore National Park, I was on a Wes Anderson-style train journey across Rajasthan on the Maharaja's Express and the train pulled into the station at sunrise and we only had that morning. And I remember uh, piling into the Jeep, we were wrapping these um, blankets around ourselves because it was actually surprisingly cold. It was, yeah, it was cold, yeah. Yeah, and sipping a cup of chai Chai, tea. Yeah, and I was so excited when we entered the park. It was serene and beautiful, and I had my camera held at the ready, like I'm sure you did for the three days that you were there. And the tigers (laughs) proved to be so elusive. We didn't see a single tiger, but I suspect um, that that's quite a common experience because Rajesh, who was my cabin valet on the train, he also became a friend and he sort of slyly laughed and with a twinkle in his eyes said, oh, good luck seeing the tiger today in this very knowing way. So I think it's uh, it's more rare than not. It's like, you sucker, like you're not going to see yeah, anything yeah. yet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, what else would you recommend for listeners interested in exploring Rajasthan but beyond uh, trying to spot tigers in Ranthambore National Park? So we did, I mean, we did a couple of stops, but I think my other favourite stop was Udapur. 
Oh, the most romantic place in India. Isn't it amazing? So they think it's called the City of Lakes and we stayed at Taj Lake Palace, which is oh, that floating palace yes. in the middle of the lake. It's unbelievable. And, yeah, so it's like this white floating palace and basically you literally feel like my husband and I were like, oh, we're, we felt like we we're Maharaj and a Maharani floating around in like a totally other world. Yes, and you take that little wooden boat from the shoreline yeah. of the glittering lake patroller uh, to the hotel and it looks like this meringue white palace floating on the water. It's so great. And then great. When, you, when you arrive, they throw these rose petals, like a shower of rose petals down on you mm. and there's a pool fringe with pink bougainvillea. Yeah, and like, yeah, bougainvillea framed windows mm. and you look out and you're totally secluded. No one can get there unless they take this little boat across. And mm. we were in this amazing suite which had, it was like a hand-painted mural of their gods or goddesses and just all these motifs but it was just so unbelievable and there was a swing at the end of the bed in terms of instagram i just went crazy because everything was just so photogenic one of my favorite things was because we were on this suite and we overlooked the courtyard so in the evenings we could sit in this little i don't know like a little balcony that we had out of our suite and we could watch and see all the dances and the music sort of drumming away and it was just everything was just sort of very mysterious Mm. and yeah it was just it was just an otherworldly experience and I I think it's probably one of the most romantic hotels in the world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's just so magical. I stayed there with my boyfriend about eight years ago and it was completely perfect. I remember saying at the time um, we'd we'd just peaked too early. Not even a honeymoon could top this experience and that it was all downhill from here. <laughs> exactly, all downhill from here and I think from memory, I think it's the best butter chicken I've ever had. Was it? <laughs> yes, so it was outstanding. We even did a uh, a cooking class to learn how to make it with the chef, but I could never quite replicate it at home. But also the buffet breakfasts were amazing too, with all the Indian dishes like the dosa, potato pancakes, and oh, the chutneys and the it's pickles. So good. The dal. Yes. And, yes. And I think I had the butter chicken there like literally every meal. I mean, it was. I remember speaking to the general manager, and I was telling him how good the butter chicken was and he's like it's not even a local dish (laughs) such a tourist yes ordering butter chicken in india you might as well wear a hat that says tourist on it i know i felt like i failed at touristing (laughs) it's worth losing your dignity it tastes so good (laughs) exactly (laughs) and for any uh james bond fans out there it was actually the setting for the 1983 film octopussy starring roger moore and i'm pretty sure that every single backpacker hostel has a nightly screening of that film there but udapur itself is jaw-droppingly beautiful there are these fantastical marble palaces strung along the shoreline and their facades seemingly glow this golden color when the sun sets and lake patrola itself glimmers it twinkles and glimmers yeah yeah yeah, yeah. pure magic um it's hard to find a more photogenic place that's for sure Mm. and speaking of photography um i'm curious to know did you always want to be a photographer growing up or is that something that you decided later in life yeah well I guess for me like once I finished school I I went to university and I studied photography and I actually majored in architectural photography so when I finished my degree I was sort of assisting other big photographers and I was shooting architecture kind of evolved and architecture turned into interiors 
and interiors turned into shooting hotels and mm. hotels led to travel. So it was kind of this evolution of design that led me into travel. But in terms of getting into full travel photography, mm. it was my first travel assignment must have been maybe 10 years ago, my first ever travel assignment to the Kimberley up in northwestern Australia. And this was back before Instagram and um, and sort of social media was a big thing. And I was shooting it for a magazine and I spent two weeks shooting a cruise um, around the Kimberley coastline. Mm-hmm. And it was unlike any job I'd ever done. And there was no mobile phone reception there. So I, we had like a satellite phone. I was completely off grid. I couldn't get in touch with anyone. And because the Kimberley, have you done the Kimberley before? I haven't, no. So it's probably my favourite place in the world to travel. It's just unlike anything, it gets under your skin. And it was one of those assignments that was so thrilling because it was so off-grid. And it was from that moment I knew that I was born to shoot on location because we were hiking up cliffs barefoot and finding waterfalls and then running away from crocodiles. (laughs) (laughs) it, It was this travel job that just had everything crammed into it and it was amazing it was kind of from that I never looked back I just knew that I was supposed to be shooting travel ah that certainly sounds like a defining moment and um and look at the career that you've created from that I actually picked up my first camera around my eighth birthday and it was this cheap disposable Kodak and I took it on this family trip to the Northern Territory and I had these lofty ambitions of capturing National Geographic worthy images of dusty red (laughs) landscapes. On your Kodak. (laughs) Yeah, of course, as an eight-year-old. And and all the hidden watering holes and giant saltwater crocodiles jumping out of the murky river near Kakadu National Park. And at the end of the holiday, we were on this croc-spotting cruise and I really realized that I hadn't loaded the film properly. So oh, no. all the photos were ruined. Were they double exposed or something or oh, something no, cool? I, or? I just never even made a single exposure. So oh. I was completely disappointed. Uh, I started bawling my eyes out and all my dreams of becoming a world-famous National Geographic photographer ended at that <laughs> moment. And then the captain of the cruise must have felt really sorry for me because he let me drive the boat through croc-infested waters to cheer me up. So it turned out to be an absolute highlight for me, but I'm pretty sure that um, all the tourists on that boat were visibly concerned that a child was at the helm of the vessel. Um, but yeah, I think that after that initial setback, it took me another 14 years to consider becoming a travel photographer, but it did give me a taste for that sense of adventure that comes with being a travel photographer. Totally. I think it was a sense of adventure and it was kind of like I'd spent so long shooting architecture and and lots of corporate stuff like hospitals and Mm. schools. And and then, you know, I was on a travel assignment and I was shooting all these amazing things and it was exhilarating. I was like, why am I going to go back and shoot? A childcare centre, you know. You found your calling. <laughs> yeah, once I'd done a travel job, I was like, I'm, I, this is what I need to do. I just got addicted. It sounds like Western Australia still holds a special place in your heart. So if a traveller wants to visit the region, where would you recommend a first-timer to WA should venture? Actually, 
Western Australia is my reset destination. So Mm -hmm. if I'm lacking inspiration, it's a destination that I always go back to reset. Because it's such a huge state of Australia, there's just so much there to explore. And it's sort of largely unpopulated, I find. Mm -hmm. I think my favourite parts are probably more up north. I've done the Ningaloo Reef area, which was thrilling. There's a, well, it's not really a resort. It is a luxury lodge. It's called Salisalis and it's like an off-grid sustainable lodge, but it's fully solar powered. Everything, all the produce comes locally and it's on the Ningaloo Reef. It's one of the most amazing places. I've heard such amazing things about Salisalis. What What's it like sleeping in those tents? Are the stars twinkling above you at mm-hmm. night? Are there wallabies just jumping around outside? What might one expect if they were to stay at Salisalis? Yes. So there are lots of little wallabies that just sort of hop past your front sort of flap we don't really have a front door you have a front flap so yeah so there's lots of little wallabies hopping past and there's a ton of flies (laughs) it's just part and parcel of Australia and what I love is that when you exit your tent the beach there it's kind of like this pink pebble beach and it's I've I've not seen anything like it it's just full of pebbles and they're all this just really beautiful pastel pink it's like I've not seen anything like that anywhere else in the world it's just bizarre And then you sort of walk into the water and it's just sort of like crystal blue, clear. And then there's just right from the shoreline, there is the reef and the reef's huge. You're just, you're immediately surrounded by fish and all sorts of sea creatures. It's just, it's just unbelievable. It's one of the most amazing places because you get to swim with uh, what do they call it? Uh, the whale sharks. sharks. Yeah, you get mm. to swim with whale sharks. And for me, when I went and shot that, that was just unbelievable because you're re-swimming in the ocean with these giant creatures and they come up and they almost like graze your body as they swim past you. It's just unbelievable. And I think now there you can actually also swim with humpback whales, which is insane. I mean, like to swim with a humpback whale. So I need to go back and do that. That's definitely on my list. Oh my gosh. Well, take me with you because I need to get to Ningaloo Reef too. It sounds amazing. And you just reminded me of when I was in Isla Mujeres, this sleepy little island just off the coast of Cancun in Mexico. Uh, And you can swim with the whale sharks there as well. And it's part of their migratory route. And many years ago, I was so excited. I got up really early to take a boat out to go swim with the whale sharks. Uh, And it was still dark when I got up and I was running around my bungalow getting ready. And I kicked my foot into the base of the bed and I broke no. my toe, so I couldn't go on the excursion at all in Disaster. the end. Yeah, oh, my dreams were dashed. And to rub salt in the wound, my friend eagerly set off, and I just oh. ended up hobbling to the beach, and I would just lie down in paradise, that has to be said, with this broken toe, <laughs> just drinking margaritas and drowning my sorrows in guacamole. So still to this day, swimming with whale sharks remains on my bucket list. But maybe Ningaloo Reef might be uh, my second attempt and my final attempt. So what else can one get up to in Western Australia apart from swimming with the whale sharks? From there, I would go north and Broome is kind of like the start of the Kimberley region. And I think the Kimberley goes from like Broome and then encompasses it um, up to not quite to Darwin, but just just before that. Kununurra, I think, is maybe the end of it. Mm -hmm. And that whole Kimberley region, um, I mean, there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can do the coast where you do a a cruiser um, and you go up around the coast and that way you can see all the waterfalls and um, all those sorts of sites. Now, are we talking about that deep red outback earth hitting the aquamarine blue coastline? 
It is correct, yes. But the thing is, you can't actually swim in that area because it is croc infested. So you, you <laughs> sort of you cruise along. Welcome to Australia, everybody. <laughs> I know. Yeah, so I mean, it's this aqua blue water, and there are some really pristine beaches, but and then sort of this red rock earth, huge waterfalls. But yeah, you can't swim. But you typically what you do is then you would take a little dinghy in, and then you would hike up these. And there's like there's no tracks or anything like that because it's all national park, and it's people can't access it from inland the only way you can access it is from the coast you're basically free climbing um and bush bashing which is really cool because no one else has been here or like minimal footprint which is one of those things that when you go to these places you can see evidence of people being there before whereas here there is really no evidence it's you and it's you and outback australia and if you fall off a cliff no one's gonna know oh, and you're, yeah. you know it's so um so you know if you do coastal like that's a really cool aspect but then there's also the Gibb River Road, which I really want to do and I haven't mm-hmm. done. I'm not sure how long the road is, but it takes you several days and you have to have some sort of really hardcore four-wheel drive and you drive through this road and it's just dirt and you hear horror stories of people's cars breaking down and um, if the road's flooded, then, you know, you have to wait for it to, to dry up, which could take days and you just camp out um, and you can drive through the bungle bungles and all these really amazing sites. So if you're really wanting to see Outback Australia and, and really feel like the red dirt kind of experience, mm. that for me is a total reset um, if I'm ever lacking inspiration I just that that's just sort of where I head and just absorb it and it's just unlike nowhere else in the world mm. and speaking of creative inspiration I'm sure the listeners would love to know about the genesis of your blog in bed with and what started you on that particular journey um, in bed with was kind of just this need for doing something creative it was probably started about six years ago I was already traveling for work. I was already shooting editorials for magazines on, you know, new hotel releases. And basically I I already had this content backed up. And so I was kind of like, people are blogging about, you know, where they're going for brunch every day or what outfits they're wearing. And I was like, my passion is unique boutique hotels and design hotels. And so I was like, well, I have this content. Let's just see if I can make a blog out of curating boutique hotels. Mm. And I just slapped it together and I came up with a name. I kind of wanted it to be a little bit mysterious a little bit sexy, a little bit cheeky. And I put it up online and just sent it to a few friends and made an Instagram account and it took off really quickly. It was kind of like I connected with this audience who also loved sleeping in really beautiful hotels around the world. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah. So yeah, and then it just took off. And then I guess I culminated more content from traveling from my other work. And then it turned into its own beast, Mm. started garnering its own jobs, which was kind of cool. So I now juggle my business as a photographer and the blog side by side as much as I can. It's, It's a bit of a juggle act, but yeah. Mm, but a dream job for so many people. It is, it is. I mean, there's like no downside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what do you look for in a hotel? Um, something that's unique. I'm typically drawn to one-off hotels, independent hotels, ones that encompass everything from design, great food, and the privilege of place, so an amazing location. Mm-hmm. Also, over the last few years, I've become really interested in hotels that are more sustainable or have implemented sustainable practices within how they operate. So everything from having their own veggie garden and sourcing food locally to what they build their, their um villas or huts or whatever out of if they're solar paneled so and I think moving forward for me that's something that's just really important and I typically tend to stick to hotels that 
are embracing this more rather than large-scale hotel chains. Mm. And across the travel industry in general, sustainability has become a huge topic of conversation. Do you think that across the board, hotel brands are generally embracing sustainability beyond lip service? Like, are they really starting to integrate caring for the environment into their concepts for their hotels? I think people are starting to embrace it more and are starting to realise that, hey, if we do things like that, not only is it good for our planet, but it also resonates with travellers because they're now actively seeking out things like this. It may, it actually is changing people's minds from booking one hotel to another. It's exactly. like, okay, well, do, you, do you care about this? If you don't, then I'll look somewhere else. So I think people are also realising that it does change the way people travel and influences their decision of where, of what hotel they book. Yes, and it's wonderful that as consumers we have the power to really change hotel practices based on the decisions that we make simply booking accommodation on a holiday. Now I have a question for you and this might be difficult to answer, but if you could live in one hotel for the rest of your life, which one would it be? Oh, that's so hard. That's like (laughs) impossible. Um, Probably Hotel Essencia in Yucatan, Mexico. For me, I think it ticks all the boxes. It's independently owned. The villas are beautiful, like made of natural materials, whitewashed, beautiful. And this beach there is absolutely pristine. So it's a little bit, it's probably about 40 minutes north of Tulum. Now, if you've been to Tulum, I think Tulum back in the day was really cool. But I think now it's probably a little bit bougie. It's very overrun with tourists. So this is kind of 40 minutes north. So Mm -hmm. the beach there is absolutely pristine and it's kind of private. And you've got unlimited guacamole, unlimited tequila. (laughs) And they even have their own little sort of turtle nest hatching program so I mean that's kind of yeah for me it's just heaven it just like ticks all the boxes Mm. so I think that's probably where I'd retire why not that sounds so heavenly and if you want the great thing is that it's a short car ride down to Tulum so if you Mm. want to go to one of the great sort of you know one of the cool restaurants or cool bars you can Mm -hmm. and then you can escape back to you know your the the privacy of Hotel Essencia oh you've got it all planned out don't you And what would you suggest uh, one ought to do if you're visiting Tulum? Well, so, I mean, you've got these underground sort of swimming pools and you kind of clamber down these rocks or some have like stairs made and then it's just a pool of aqua water underneath and some have like a really big hole at the top where, you know, sunlight sort of streams in and then others have a really tiny hole. So, but they're all over the place and I don't actually know how they're formed or how people discover them, maybe by like stumbling through a hole and then like falling to their death. I don't know. (laughs) Um, They're actually a little bit dangerous. Most of them I think are discovered of it now and they all have someone patrolling them. Mm, And for the listeners, I think they're called cenotes and they're hauntingly beautiful. The way that the shafts of light pierce through deep into the caves. It is. It is kind of magical. A lot of them have been set up quite touristy now and they Mm. have people doing sort of dances and demonstrations and then, and you think, oh, this is really great. Um, This is all sort of very authentic. And then they ask you for money and you're like, oh, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) But still, that's a must. And of course, the Mayan ruins as well. Yeah. And how did you get around? Did you have a car? Yes, yeah, so we did hire a car. So me and my sister went at the time. I mean, she's a lot younger than me. She's like 
early 20s. And it was like two girls who had rented this crap box car that was falling apart. And we decided to just road trip through Yucatan, which was a total disaster because we had no <laughs> idea what we were doing. And we ended up getting terribly lost. We didn't have data on our phones and we kind of were just following the signs. And it was really funny because we saw this sign and my sister was like, no, no, it's this other one. I remember from the map. And so we took this random dirt road. I swear it was the smallest road I've ever seen. The bushes on either side were scraping the sides of the car for kilometers. And I was like, where are we? I was like, we're literally driving through someone's farm. Oh my gosh. I had no idea what we were doing. Then the road opened up and I swear we were overreacting. We were like, oh my goodness, we're going to die out here, you know, in the middle of Mexico and no one's ever going to hear from us again. Um, we were melodramatic, but we were literally like, this is cartel country. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like your imaginations were in overdrive. Um, Although the Yucatan is relatively safe, you do need to be aware of where you venture in Mexico and you need to stay alert and and aware of your surroundings. I travelled around Mexico with a friend in our early 20s and everyone said to us before we left, you know, don't go, it's really dangerous. And especially in the US, there's this, you know, perception or singular narrative about Mexico. Um, But I think that if you do your research and you're sensible, it's such an incredible place to visit. I actually think that Mexico is one of my top three countries in the world to explore. Me too. Me too. Yeah, there's just so much culture and colour and history and incredible food. And it's amazing how each region is just so different. Like the landscapes completely change and the scenery and even the culture changes from place to place. But yeah, check government travel advice, follow the news, and maybe uh, maybe don't do what Rhiannon did and just drive into the unknown. <laughs> You have to have a heightened sense of security, um, a heightened sense of safety, I should say. But the reason why I was so paranoid was I think it was two weeks beforehand there'd been these Aussie surfer tourists who had gotten murdered. Um, It was in a different part of Mexico. Like Yucatan's quite a touristy safe part of Mexico. But, you know, so then we were like theorising all these ideas of, oh, my goodness, what if our car breaks down and then we're dead, you know, basically. Your imagination just ran wild. Just ran wild. That said, the road trip was beautiful because we did stop in these little towns across. And the towns in Yucatan, they all have seem to have like this color themes. I think it's is it Isamal or Isamal? You know, you stop in this town and every single house and building is like all yellow and it's just like another world. It's like crazy, these like colorful little towns. Mm. And we ended up in Merida, which we stayed at the night. But it's funny. The road that we ended up taking, we realized, was actually just the old road. And they'd built this like brand new spanking <laughs> like freeway yeah. that literally ran parallel to this like crappy <laughs> dirt road that we took. So we were we were heading the right way. We yeah. were just on the old road. So what would have taken us probably two hours took us six hours. <laughs> terrible road. But it sounds like a real adventure and that's what we love. Exactly. And uh, what was Merida like when you arrived there? I haven't been, but um, I know that it's the cultural capital of the Yucatan Peninsula. I've heard that it's experiencing some kind of cultural renaissance, like There are a lot of artists and creatives that are based there. What were your impressions? 
I would love to give you more information on Merida, <laughs> but the fact that our two-hour drive turned into <laughs> six hours meant that the allocated time that I had to explore all these things was drastically reduced. I'm sure you've probably heard of Koki Koki, the perfumery house that has boutique hotels throughout Yucatan. Ah, uh, yes. It looks so gorgeous. Yeah. So we'd booked, and this was like my little splurge, I'd booked one night only at Koki Koki Merida, which is this really Instagrammable, beautiful suite above this perfumery. Isn't it set in a Bella Epoque style townhouse? Yes, it's insane. And I'd had all these visions of all these beautiful photos I was going to take and I'd paid a fortune for this hotel room and literally I got there five minutes before the sun was setting and I got managed <laughs> to take like one photo and then and our flight was the next morning at like 7am. So we literally had 10 hours in this hotel room basically or just a night there. It was such a waste but it was funny because I was stressing so much when we got there because the light was going down. I wanted to take photos of this beautiful hotel room. The roads are so tiny there and it's just such a tiny little town or Mm. city. You can't park on the street or anything like that. So I literally found this car park which was around the corner from the hotel and I don't even know if it was a car park. It was just this guy and I just was like, can I park my car here? And he was like, yeah, yeah, this is a car park. And so I just stuffed some money in his hand, we <laughs> gave him my car keys, and we had probably like six suitcases because I had all my camera equipment. Oh, the camera gear, yeah. Yeah, I had like lighting, lighting bags, tripod bags, my Pelican case for all my equipment. And so we were dragging like six cases to haul ass to get to cocky cocky and then we get there and the guys are checking us in and then it's up four flights of stairs and it's not a hotel so he was literally like here's your key uh, so there's no real concierge here who's going to help us with our bags he was like nope it's up on like the top floor and so <laughs> these two girls lugging all this equipment up and I'm screaming at my sister I'm like hurry the sun is going I want to take some photos <laughs> the life of a hotel photographer so once you got into the room what was it like can you describe it for us so the ceilings are ridiculously high and it's all draped with giant velvet curtains and tassels and it has two bathtubs next to it, two claw-footed bathtubs next wow. to each free other. Freestanding ones. Freestanding ones. So it's after I took these three photos before the sun was completely mm. gone, we just kind of looked at ourselves and we're like, oh, well, let's pour a bath and yeah. let's just make the most of it. And <laughs> the beautiful thing about that suite is because it is owned by a perfumery house, every single amenity in the room is just unbelievable. So it's these beautiful velvety robes and then you have six or seven different soaps and little bottles of perfume, like actual bottles of their fragrance in the room. So it's, you can just mix and match. It's a full sensory experience in mm. terms of fragrances. So then basically we just drowned ourselves in different perfumes <laughs> for the rest of the night and just sort of mucked around in the bathtub. I totally understand, though, when you're a travel photographer and you have a limited amount of time in one place, um, you're basically just chasing the light. I know the feeling when you have to shoot a hotel room or a particular view and the sun is starting to go down and you end up just running around like a mad woman. Um, But you mentioned that you started studying architecture. Does that have an impact on the way that you view design or spaces or streetscapes in terms of photography? Like, is there a particular city that you're drawn to for the architecture, for example? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, everywhere is unique. I think for me, one of my favorite places is Istanbul. Oh, yes. In fact, I think, how long was I there for? I think I was only there for 48 hours and I've been dying to go back ever since. Mm. I actually visited a couple of years back for a shoot for Architectural Digest and I shot a man called Serdar Gulgan. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's an Asaloon author and he's an expert in Ottoman art. Yeah, he's quite a famous collector and he's got incredible style too. Yeah, so I actually got to go and shoot his house and it was incredible. It was this sort of historic, it was almost like crumbling house and it was full of deep rich ruby colors and prints and wallpapers and velvety fabrics and he makes objects of curiosity so he has these weird brass turtles and hands and all sorts of weird things Mm. throughout the house so it was like very it was kind of this cool sort of nod to Istanbul's history and the Byzantine architecture that it's full of and for me I don't think there's anywhere like it in the world. It's just this amazing city that just has architecture on like nowhere else. Mm. And I guess the one of the things that makes Istanbul so interesting is that very few places span two continents. Like it's a city where the east meets west Crazy. and you have Europe and Asia divided by Bosphorus the Bosphorus Strait and it's so stunning and there's the golden mosaics of the Hagia Sophia, the dazzling blue mosque and these minarets piercing the skyline and then there's all the fishermen lined up down by the Galata Bridge and the Grand Bazaar which is just intoxicating and there's something truly magical when the call to prayer just rings out across the city. Like everyone just kind of takes stock and goes completely still when that call comes Mm. down. It's just like this unspoken roar where everyone just sort of pauses. It's it's a city like nowhere else. I'm not sure if you have a sweet tooth but whenever I visit Istanbul I always go back to this one baklava shop It's in this neighbourhood called Karakoy, right by the river, and oh my gosh, they make the most delicate pastry, and it's intricately layered and studded with pistachios and almonds, and then it's soaked in this sugary syrup. So next time you go, you have to stop by. The food there is unbelievable. It's clean and fresh and healthy, but then just so full of flavour. It's my favourite. The next time I go back to Turkey, though, I also want to do the coast. I want to go down sort of Bodrum and see that whole coastal area. I think that's probably, you know, like everyone sort of has a new thing for like Euro summer. Mm -hmm. The Turkish coast will be the new hot thing for summer maybe next year. Mm, I think you might be right. And I'm not sure if you still can, but you used to be able to get a ferry across from the Greek islands to Bodrum. I remember doing a day trip once after spending a summer in the Dodecanese, um, and it was just a short ferry trip from Kos to Bodrum, and you're in a whole new country. So, yeah, it's really something worth doing. Anyways, I know that you're a foodie. So what would you say is the most memorable meal that you've had on holiday? Oh, I think this there's so many and I'm a little bit of a glutton like I would literally (laughs) eat everything and anything that's in front of me it's funny when you travel and particularly if you're traveling for work you tend to get everything put in front of you because you know I'm either photographing it or you know it's for work but I think my favorite meal is probably something very simple maybe a carbonara at Roscioli in Rome it's an institution Rome I mean as a city is just probably one of my favorite cities in the world and there's just something about the al dente pasta and just the simplicity of ingredients and the saltiness of the pork and it's just 
that's probably one of my favorite dishes. Inversely, on the other spectrum, maybe mm-hmm. like brisket in Austin, Texas, something really like fatty and unctuous and salt of the earth kind of. Experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't discriminate to be honest. I mean, if you gave me fried chicken, I'd be super happy. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, often eating what the locals do is so much better than a high end restaurant anyway. I've definitely, as I've gotten older, sort of moved more away from fine dining mm-hmm. and moved more to comfort food and simple food. I think that's a pretty good food philosophy. Now, Rhiannon, you've journeyed to so many corners of the globe. Can you share with us a secret little place that you know, maybe a hidden gem that the listeners ought to consider travelling to? I think for me, probably the most, my most memorable travel experience and one that people don't really look to as Australians is Lord Howe Island. Have you ever been? No, I haven't. You must go. I mean, for me, it's probably one of my favorite little spots in the world. Mm -hmm. It's so it's a two hour flight off from Sydney or Brisbane. And I think you can only take, there's only one certain type of plane that you can take to get there and Qantas flies and it's like a little propeller dash something I don't know I'm not an AV geek but it's only one type of plane that can land on their runway and it's world heritage listed there's only 400 people allowed on the island at a time and it's this island that is kind of like before time began it's got these we could say it's almost like volcanic looking mountains but then sort of pristine paradise beaches it's just unlike anywhere in the world there's no cars everywhere you have to take a bike you bike basically cycle your way around the island there's one restaurant there's one supermarket and basically it's just somewhere where you go to get completely off grid there's very little or no phone reception i didn't have phone reception when i was there the main beach is called i think it's called blinky's beach and it's pristine white sand but as soon as you get into the water Fish basically swarm your feet. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, Because there's no real fishing on the island, the sea life there doesn't really have a fear of humans. Mm. So when you walk into the water, basically, and this is, it's kind of like a scene out of some sort of surreal fantasy movie. You know, you're snorkeling and you've just, there's a seahorse and then there's a turtle and then there's like a baby shark that just floats past your face. And you're like, what is happening here? There's every single sea creature that is known to man is just circling me right now. And they have no fear of me and I don't really have a fear of them. And it's just kind of like you're in this weird sort of symbiosis. It's just bizarre. So, I mean, for me, I think it's just unbelievable. I've never been anywhere like it. It's so close to Sydney. I feel so bad I've never been. My favourite part is actually this beach called Sunset. I think it's called Sunset Beach. So you go there for sunset, obviously. (laughs) But um, they have these like two giant turtles that come in with the tide every, um, every evening and they literally come to have head scratches or shell scratches from people so they come and basically want to physically interact with people on the island and the funny thing is I was kind of apprehensive at first because I'm like am I supposed to be touching this turtle Mm. but it comes up and it kind of headbutts your leg like come on give me a scratch and you're like what is going on and then you scratch its back or you pat its back and you're like okay maybe that's enough and then you sort of take a step back and then it comes forward and it's giving you a little head nudge again it's like no come on I want some more It's unbelievable. I mean, I've never had anything like that happen to me before anywhere. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Oh, that is so adorable. And uh, speaking of paradise, you've photographed enough honeymoon destinations to be an aficionado on the subject of holiday romance. What's your pick for the most romantic place on the planet? Well, my honey, we spent our honeymoon night at Grand Hotel Tremezzo on Lake Como. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but this in terms of 
a hotel is the quintessential luxury lovers number one pick in the world kind of hotel. I mean, not only is does it look magnificent, it's this beautiful Italian villa right on the lake and it has the floating pool that's submerged within Lake Como. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of those full service hotels that they just look after you from sort of head to toe, you know, from the moment you arrive, you don't think about anything. Nothing is too big a ask. And mm. The, even like the rooms, like these beautiful Italian rooms with sort of silky sheets and you wake up and you go out into your balcony you're just looking at Lake Como and it's just, you just feel like a royal, you feel like Italian nobility. It's just, yeah, it's probably my most romantic, it's the most romantic experience I've ever had. Oh, wow. It's a real La Dolce Vita. Pure indulgence. Amazing. I mean, at that hotel, I mean, they have multiple amazing restaurants, which we tried. We had, I think one of their signature dishes is the pasta that's served in the round of Parmesan Mm. and, you know, where they just keep spinning the pasta in this melting cheese and then they put truffle on it and you're just literally just gorging and you're like, oh my gosh, you need to be rolled back to your room. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the point of Italy. If you're not doing that, you're not doing it right. Totally. I mean, it was such a high. We'd had this amazing, uh, because we got married in Italy, so we had this like amazing wedding week in Tuscany with like our family and friends and then you know we sort of had our wedding night at Grand Hotel Tremezzo and it was just yeah it was such a high and then inversely the rest of our honeymoon was in Spain which I'd never done before and I'd planned this entire two weeks in Spain and it was a total disaster so we should have stayed at Grand Hotel Tremezzo to be honest. Why what made it a disaster? <laughs> well I didn't really know anything about Spain so when we got there it was I think it was July and basically everything was closed yeah. and we didn't know that in Spain everyone eats really late like at 11 p.m so it come like 6 p.m when we're stuck because we're on Italy time Mm -hmm. so come 6 p.m we're like starving and nothing's open so I think I think most of the time we ended up just buying a bread roll and some cheese from like a local (laughs) supermarket and eating it because we couldn't find anything open we just it was just disaster uh yeah and the heat is absolutely searing in July in Andalusia it was so hot yeah so they like to have their siestas and time moves a lot more slowly in southern Spain than say it does in Madrid. But tell me, you still have the scent of orange blossom, the swish of a flamenco dress, or the glimpse of a whitewashed village perched atop a craggy cliff. I mean, was there any part of that trip that made you fall in love with Andalusia? Well, we did end on a high. So we sort of did this road trip through the south of Spain. And Mm. after basically having disaster after disaster, we ended up at a really beautiful resort called Finca Cortesan. Mm -hmm. It's in a really beautiful, um, it's at the base of a really beautiful town called Caceres. Um, or Casare, and we did find a really beautiful restaurant there um, called Restaurant Sarmiento, and it was nestled in the cliff and it was open, which was a major bonus because nothing we've been to was open. And this white-on-white town and beautiful white horses were strolling the streets. I felt like we had actually stepped into what I had envisaged our South of Spain trip to be. Mm. So we did have two nights where it was amazing, but the rest of it was a total disaster. (laughs) (laughs) I love your honesty as well. It's really refreshing to hear about the times on our travels when things don't really go to plan. No. And I mean, it's supposed to be my thing. Like I'm supposed to be the one who knows about travel. And it was just so, it just did not work out. (laughs) We were like, we're never coming back to Spain. Oh no, don't write Spain off. 
you just need to revisit during a cooler time of year and give it a second chance. Yeah. Southern Spain will really seduce anybody, especially the architecture, and you have to visit the Alhambra in Granada. It's one of the most exquisite buildings that I think I have ever seen. But before we go, and um, we're going to have to wrap up soon, what about future travels? Where are you dreaming of escaping to next? I really want to go to Bora Bora. I've never done that sort of um, that sort of region. I've done like Fiji and Cook Islands, but I mm. haven't gone any further. So Bora Bora would be next on my list. Um, and then probably more of Africa. I really want to do Rwanda and Kenya. Mm. Um, I've done South Africa a couple of times, but um, I'd really love to break out of South Africa and maybe go and see the gorillas in Rwanda. Or mm. Yeah, that's next on my list. Oh, I can't wait to see the photographs that you take when you do eventually get there. And before we wrap up, for the listeners who wish that they could make their holidays look as Instagrammable as yours, is there like a sort of top tip or a little bit of advice that you can give for taking a beautiful holiday snap? The things that I most consider when I take a photo is watch the light, look at the lines and don't overthink it. So something that's a little bit undone, um, I think... Now with Instagram, uh, people sort of take photos to perfect a feed um, and sort of worry too much about, you know, um, making things look overposing or, you know, um, making things look a little too constructed. Mm. And I think the best photos, well, for me, the what I'm most drawn to is when it looks when it looks kind of a little bit real and it looks like you could almost have just stepped out of that photo mm. um, and it invites the viewer to mentally put themselves into that picture. So not to overwork it and just to kind of leave it a little bit undone, a little bit of mess. I like a little bit of mess in a photo. Yes, and I love your signature messy bed photographs as well. It feels as if you could jump into the photo and wake up in that hotel suite yourself. And, Re, I've thoroughly enjoyed hearing all about your glamorous adventures around the globe and some of the hilarious mishaps along the way, as well as the insider intel into the creme de la creme of accommodation. So thank you so much for joining me on The Escape Artist today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was the very talented Melbourne-based travel photographer, Rhiannon Taylor. After chatting with Rhiannon, I now have added a dozen new hotels to my wish list. I thoroughly recommend visiting her blog In Bed With for a dose of escapism. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. Of course, I'd love to hear from you. And if you're looking for some more travel inspiration, you can find me on Instagram at Escape Artist Podcast. See you next week for another episode of The Escape Artist.